Welcome to A New York Minute in History, a podcast about the history of New York and the unique tales of New Yorkers. I'm Devin Lander, the New York State historian. And I'm Lauren Roberts, the historian for Saratoga County. My personal title for this episode is Extra Innings. And that's because there was so much to discuss with John Thorne, the official historian of Major League Baseball, and Tom Schieber of the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, that there was too much great material for just one episode. Well, my name is Johnny Evers. I'm from Albany, New York. I'm the great-grandnephew of Johnny Evers. Um, I was named after Johnny Evers. My father is also John Evers. It seems to be a repetitive thing over and over in our family. So to iron this out, we have today's Johnny Evers talking about a Johnny Evers of yesteryear? Precisely. And for further clarification of who the Johnny Evers was, we asked, well, Johnny Evers. He was born in the late uh, 19th century, in 1881. He was one of uh, five brothers and three sisters. His parents were Irish, uh, Irish immigrants. Uh, They were settled in South Troy. So his father, who was the original John Evers, married uh, uh, Gaffigan. Um, I think it was Mary Gaffigan. They raised the children in South Troy, St. Joseph's Parish, very heavily Irish Catholic neighborhood. Uh, Like all uh, Irish uh, immigrants at the time, they were laborers. They uh, played baseball for fun, and that'll be the the crux of what made him famous. So every town, every village, and in some cases like Troy, every neighborhood had a team. Often they gravitated around where you worked, and uh, Johnny Evers was no exception. Uh, he worked in a shirt collar factory, the famous Collar City. So John Evers participated in that, in that industry. And when he was a teenager, um, he played for a team, I think it was called the Cheer Ups, where they would try to draw a crowd. And back then it was very informal. It wasn't like today where you have contracts and, and you have to sign a, a multiple-year contract, whatever. This was sandlot ball that drew crowds, and you could charge admission. And that's what John Evers tried to do, was you could get a big enough crowd to see a really good team, and you could make a dollar or two off of it. But it was also a good outlet for immigrants and for uh, people that didn't have a lot to do. Evers played his way into the New York State League as a member of the 1902 Troy Trojans. When a representative from the Chicago Cubs came to scout Evers' teammate, it was the short, skinny, but fiercely competitive infielder that stood out. In September of that year, Evers debuted as a member of the Major League Chicago Cubs. They called him Krabby. That was his nickname. Uh, He was a very short-tempered, irascible-type person. We don't know if it's due to his short height. I mean, he was a very slight person, very uh, um, thin. You know, he, he claims he never weighed more than 120 when he played. Uh, when he broke in to the majors in 1902, the other players laughed at him because they gave him the standard issue woolen long sleeve jersey, and he looked like a little kid. They thought it was a joke. Uh, that didn't help his temper. But he was, uh, I'm going to get the last word. I'm going to find a way to win. I'm going to find a way to beat you, and I won't sleep until I do. And that was his you know, attitude when he played, he played hurt. He'd do whatever he had to do to beat you. Of course, it was more of a team sport then. It was small ball, you know, get on base, steal a base, bunt him over. Somebody hit it deep enough to get the guy in. Um, And that's how Johnny was everywhere. He bit by bit tried to find a way to beat you. And uh, his temper was legendary, even in the family. You know, 
Uh, I think my father, who was uh, in his late 70s, was one of the last people to actually meet him. And it was even as a little kid, he was known as, as a real <laughs> crusty old man. He was the same when he was young. Uh, if Ty Cobb weren't Ty Cobb, I, they probably would have said Evers was the meanest. Now, despite his skill, determination, and the aforementioned crabbiness, what has truly stitched the name Johnny Evers into baseball history are the second baseman's smooth double plays with shortstop Joe Tinker and first baseman Frank Chance. By the time they really hit their, their stride, you know, from 1902 to 3, they start to gel. It gets to be in the 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, though, that sweet spot. So all the 1900s is dominated by this solid infield that doesn't change. That's got a former catcher, you know, Frank Chance at 6 foot tall, um, who would, he had broken fingers, he had bruises, he had, the, the, some people think that he died early because of all the beans to the head he hit, you know, got uh, before the protective equipment of the day. Uh, Joe Tinker from, you know, Kansas at shortstop, um, uh, a smart player himself, uh, very good batsman, uh, very good batsman against Christy Matheson. I think in Christy Matheson's uh, biography credits Joe Tinker as the greatest hitter ever because, uh, against him because he, he couldn't get him out. He batted like 400 against him. Um, and then you had Evers, you know, from Troy. So you have a mix, and, and by the way, Chance from California. So you have this, this real mix of players that somehow gel and perform the best they can at their positions and then perform very well offensively, uh, could communicate on the field very well. It's interesting, Johnny Evers for years didn't talk to Joe Tinker. I mean, it was he was that kind of guy, hold a grudge. Uh, whatever, there's various versions of why they hated each other, but Johnny Evers said, you know, I'm not talking to you, and Tinker said, great, don't talk to me. And, you know, they didn't for like six years, until, and then finally Tinker leaves and goes to the Reds, and Evers stays on. And I think the story goes that they meet again in 1938, you know, like 32 years later, and they are in Chicago, and they look at each other, and they recognize each other, and they hug each other and start crying, and they, they say, you know, I haven't talked to you in 32 years, and it's ironic because about six of those years I played next to you every day. The trio's accomplishments were enshrined for future generations through a 1910 poem written by newspaper columnist Franklin Pierce Adams. It's become known as Baseball's Sad Lexicon. So the poem is, uh, these are the saddest of possible words, tinker to evers to chance, trio of bear cubs and fleeter than birds, tinker and evers and chance, ruthlessly pricking our gonfalon bubble, making a giant hit into a double, words that are heavy with nothing but trouble, Tinker to Evers to Chance. Now, that famous poem, some say catapulted Evers and Tinker and Chance in the Hall of Fame. I, I disagree with that. I think they belong there because they were just phenomenal pillars of the early uh, game of baseball, and Chance was one of the best managers ever. But this poem really showed the rivalry because making a giant hit into a double, it's capitalized. It's a giant, meaning the New York Giants hit. And talking about the Gonfalon bubble, the pennant bubble, you know, the race to, the, to get that magical pennant. And part of this is exemplified by the poem, and part of it is by Johnny Evers' own doing himself with the famed Merkel play. And back in 1908, uh, when there was the rivalry, the Giants and the Cubs, and also the Pirates were in that uh, playoff or in the pennant race that year, Johnny Evers, who mastered the rules, talking about irascibility and trying to get his, his real advantage on anything he can do, found the rule that said, uh, a run shall be scored um, every time a player crosses a plate when it's not on the third out of an inning, something like that. 
Well, in the custom was somebody on third base and they get a, somebody gets a single and hits it over the second baseman's head or rolls in the outfield, guy comes in from third and scores. Mm-hmm. Well, the guy from running to first just stops and walks off the field. Well, Lever said technically that's a force. And it'd be a force, you know, if he, the guy hit it in the air and he caught it, it's an out, right? Mm-hmm. He said if the guy, you know, it wasn't the third, uh, the run of the game, he runs to first base and he's slow, the guy from right field guns him out at first, which happens rarely, but does, he's out, right? He said, yeah. Well, Evers mastered this and caught a person in Pittsburgh doing it. And the umpire of the day, Hank O'Day, said, oh, come on, Johnny, you got to be crazy. No one enforces that. He goes, but it is the rule, right? So they protested it and they lost the protest. Fast forward to September 23rd, 1908, when a young man named Fred Merkel comes up to the plate, gets a hit. By the way, Fred Merkel, fantastic baseball player, always, uh, you know, given a real bad rap because of this one play. He's on first base, man's on third. Next guy gets a hit. Merkel doesn't run all the way to second, or he claims he did because it really got into affidavits and everything. But uh, Johnny Evers saw the play. Scream for the ball. And the guy in the outfield, uh, Circus Solly Hoffman, who's had great names then, threw the ball towards Johnny. It goes over his head, gets loose. By now, everybody's running over the field. Johnny's screaming for the ball. And uh, Frank Chance, Joe Tinker, I think Floyd Crow, a reserve pitcher, goes and gets a ball, a ball, the ball, we'll never know for sure, and starts running there. Iron Man McGinnity who's coaching third for the Giants, tries to wrestle him. By now, the New York Giant fans, it would have been great to see this live, punching the, the Cub players, trying to you know physically hold them back. Well, as luck would have it, who's the umpire of the day is the same guy from a couple weeks earlier, Hank O'Day, who sees and knows what Johnny's doing. Evers gets a ball. He's jumping up and down at second base. Don't know where Fred Merkel is. Later, Fred says that he did touch it, second base. Uh, then there's all kinds of conspiracies that he didn't have a ball. He was found another one. So O'Day and everybody have to clear the field. When it's all calm, they say Evers is right. Merkel is out. And uh, we'll have to replay the game because now it's a tie. It was, it was great ironies of this since everything happened to line up the right way. So in the uh, dark hours of the night, the Cubs protest, want the win. The Giants protest, they want the win. They say, well, listen, we'll get out of this. Uh, I think Harry Pulliam, the president of the National League, says, it's a tie. If we need it, we'll have a playoff game. Everybody's thinking, it's not going to happen. It's, that's just too, it can't be. It finishes in a, in a tie. So they've got to play it in New York City. The Cubs take the train into New York. They play the one-game playoff. They win 4-2. to two. They win it all. They go on to win their last World Series until a couple of years ago when Chicago wins. And it was all because Johnny Evers, scrappy and mean and wanted the advantage, demanded an out and wanted the rules enforced, got the out, overturned the game. That game forced a playoff game. They won the playoff game. They go to the World Series. They win the World Series. So... That made John Evers known as one of the smartest men in baseball. You know, I really love this about history, how one event, which may not seem all that important at the time, causes a ripple that becomes a major wave. But what was it about the poem itself that made Tinker to Evers to Chance a lasting phrase, one that symbolizes a smoothness, a synchronicity? Adams, in this kind of magical way, takes this phrase, this infield, that's well-known, sews it together, that talks about pennant races, talks about a great rivalry, 
talks about you know the the play together, uh, the sadness of the giants. Um, so you have a, an emotional um, heaviness to it, and you talk about they're nothing but trouble. You know they're taking giants hits and making them double plays. It's sing-songy. It's true. It hits the medium of the day. And it's timeless because it shows how baseball really is, you know, the American pastime. Thanks for joining us on A New York Minute in History, a podcast about the history of New York and the unique tales of New Yorkers. I'm Devin Lander. And I'm Lauren Roberts. Stay tuned to WAMCpodcasts.org and the New York State Museum website for more episodes, including our related one on baseball in the 19th century. A New York Minute in History is a production of the New York State Museum, WAMC Northeast Public Radio, and Archivist Media. WAMC's Jim Laboulis is our producer. Support for the project comes from the William G. Pomeroy Foundation. The program is also funded in part by Humanities New York with support from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Thanks to Johnny Evers for telling the story of the other Johnny Evers. Until next time. Excelsior. <laughs>